Um, just to back up, if you guys have been with uh, some of you guys have been with our Bible study um, for a long time, and thank you guys for for being here. Um, once a year, I like to do things that are more of a controversial nature. I, I think everything we do is in some sense controversial, but not for the sake of controversial, but specifically with the things with government. Um, if you guys were with us in 2020, um, we did one during the summer where we did a four-week series on a biblical view of economics. Anyone got, anybody remember that? I think Jesus really loved that. He's helped me type notes for that because I've lost some some of my outlines. Okay. And then last year, around 4th of July, we also did a biblical view of human nature and also its implication for limited government and also even a constitutional government and even looking at the Constitution with that, okay? All that I'm doing is I hope you guys know that my heartbeat is not Christian nationalism, okay? I think you guys know that I'm all about the gospel, okay? But nevertheless, I do think a biblical view has implication for how we do government and how we even view modes of government and things of that nature, um, so if you guys are interested, that's, I did load that on Sermon Audio, and the outlines is also on the blog. Tonight, I actually want to do this um, one, and it's been one, and it's unfortunate I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, because there's a lot of quotation. Is What I want to look at tonight is actually the Old Testament and its implication on due process. Okay, The Old Testament and its implication for due process is what I want to look at. Because I, I think today, one of the things that... Um, I don't know if you guys feel this. I, um, since the decision Roe versus Wade, I, you know, I have certain views. My view is I also um, hold a view. I don't think the state should wait. Um, I'm more and more convinced the state should not ever wait for any, any courts to do the right thing. That the state, the the way that the founding fathers had, and also in light of a biblical view of implication of separation of powers. Um, one branch should not wait for another branch to do the right thing, that they have responsibility before God and also with the law to do what is right. But nevertheless, I'm also, this week, um, the last two weeks, I've also been very shocked at just social media of just how, um, even I mentioned this Sunday, of how many people could openly talk about violence because of a certain court decision. And one of the things that I'm shocked with when I see violence, a uh, mention of violence, I do make a difference between frustration, which I'm kind of still, okay, like I disagree, but I'll move on. But actual threatening of violence towards a certain subset of people when people are actually mentioned. And I've been surprised that I don't think of all this week, this last two weeks, that all the things that I reported violence, both on Twitter and Facebook, every time when the social media get back to me, they all say it's still within community standard, which scratches my head. Like I feel like um, even the pre-sub group that I'm in, we've been hit with things that doesn't even mention any violence. And they're saying we're, we're threatening violence and the group status quality is gonna go down. And I'm just scratching my head. No one's mentioned about violence, but how could these things were explicitly and still fits within community standards? Um, you guys are interested in that, you guys can message me. I could show you, I'm not making these things up. I've taken screenshot, reported, and I'm just so shocked how people could threaten violence. And even with, even with mainstream media, I'm also surprised how they just have one unfavorable court decision. Um, and conservatives see so many, but one unfavorable, and they're threatening the whole thing. It's almost as if this is the unpardonable sin. This almost becomes a sacrament of abortion. So in light of this today, I want to talk about even the idea of courts, that there's so many things we take for granted um, with the court system that actually I think it actually what I want to go over today is biblical, but also somewhat of apologetics in the sense of how we see the Bible actually make an impact on culture and civilization um, for the better. Okay, for the better. And also, nevertheless, I also want to show us that also as well, that as I think as we go more and more away from a Christian foundation in a post-Christian world, some of these things are no longer taken for granted. Or some of these things we do take it for granted, but we do not understand that historically the root of that impact was actually with um, Christianity, okay, with impact. So the sources I use, um, I know in these type, type of discussions, um, these things are very um, heated. And there's some that would even say, hey, do not use sources, um, certain things. Um, I do believe that there's times Christians have done bad history when it talks about government. Um, I don't want to be too mean, but David Barton is someone that I've benefited from. But David Barton has also not have done well some of these things in citing uh, accurately. So I'm not a guy, type of guy that likes to look at these sources that end up being like when you look at it, it's like, oh, in the context, someone is going to go back to you and say, hey, you mischaracterize. I do not like that thing because I also feel that poorly equips us to actually engage but nevertheless, I actually do believe that when you look at it in an analytical 
in an academic study with using all the tools of political science and with history, I do believe that the Bible has made a great impact towards even uh, human flourishing and even write laws and even the process of even the courts, okay? So I'm making this as part of our, you know, third year of doing these kind of thing of this annual series. And this one today, I'm going to be looking not so much with the legislative branch and stuff like that, but today is actually going to be looking at even the courts. We take it for granted something that's called due process. That when someone is wrong, when we want to say someone is guilty of something, there's actual process that we go about to find someone is guilty, um, and I actually think a big part of that is actually the Old Testament's impact, okay? Uh, like I said, it's unfortunate tonight I don't have the PowerPoint presentation, but all these things will, will be uh, going up. And if you guys could also be gracious with me, tonight I'm going to be quoting a lot. And all my resources are actually from academic journals, secular academic journals, and also as well professors that teach. And they're not necessarily Christians, but I want to show you that, that with this is to say that my, when I talk about these things about the Bible making an impact, Specifically tonight, I'm going to focus on the Old Testament. It's actually something that when we see history, we have a lot to be thankful for um, in Western civilization with this. Okay, so if you're taking notes with me tonight, um, we, our purpose tonight is tonight's lesson to see how the uh, Old Testament makes an impact in Western civilization on legal due process that we take for granted. Okay, on legal due process that we take for granted. How this kind of fits in tonight is I, taking a break from our Old Testament uh, correction, our apologetics series where we're looking at unit two of historical apologetics and to say, and this is more like a cultural apologetics, maybe in the line of like something like Francis Schaeffer saying that it, in light of Christianity it's true, in light of Christians, if they follow biblical principle, it actually makes an impact on culture and society for the better, okay? So three points tonight if you're taking notes, okay? Three points for tonight. Point number one, the Old Testament influence on need for trials, okay? The Old Testament influence on need for trials. So that's point number one. The Old Testament influence on need for trials. Even later on when we go on to this point, I'm going to, um, actually, I'll just say each point first, okay? Point number one, the Old Testament influence on need for trials. That trials are actually very important, okay? The Old Testament imp influence on need for trials. Point number two, the Old Testament influence on innocence until proven guilty. The Old Testament influence on innocence until proven guilty. The Old Testament influence on innocence until proven guilty. Okay, so that's point number two. Um, and point number three is going to be a bigger one um, is the Old Testament point number three the Old Testament influence on trial by witnesses on trial by witnesses okay I think when we think of court we often think of a trial we think of uh, innocent till proven innocent, uh, guilty and also as well with, uh, that you must have witness these things we kind of take for granted which are three points but sometimes some of these things, I think it's like philosophy and apologetics, some things we take for granted until we start thinking about, wait, what is the foundation? What justifies it, right? But also, I think as we go over this, it's not just pure philosophy or, or, or talking of law. This is actually going to be a historical discussion of where do we get these ideas? It, we take it so much for granted today because of, of the influence of the Old Testament, of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, that sometimes we don't realize that this was not always throughout history people believed this. This is also not necessarily a view that every culture believes today. This is also not the culture of every legal tradition and form of government there is out there. So these three things, where does the West get the idea of the idea of the need for trials and also the need for innocence of proven guilty and also um, the influence of trial by witnesses? Um, as we go over this tonight, I want to talk about the Old Testament ideas for this. And also as well with this is um, even also as well with even how did actually with citation, historical development that actually I want to demonstrate it really is from the Old Testament that people that think about law, legal thinkers were shaped by this influence, okay? Um, tonight, um, when we go over this, I have far more quotation, more than what I could have for the sessions, okay? Um, so the last few weeks, I've been, the last week, uh, last actually this last weekend, I've been sleeping at 5 a.m. because the amount of data that I'm reading from various sources, I'm just so blown away um, as I'm reading works from, you know, Cambridge and from Oxford and all these guys. I'm just blown away 
how much of these things we live in a day and age i feel like um to say that the bible make an impact on western civilization for the better of law is so controversial even among christians right people right away say no no it's not i i don't believe in theonomy i don't all these things or some people um by the way i think my view assumes general equity of the old testament that there's implication for the old testament okay um but nevertheless even the secular left is even more so but as I go over this, I actually think that we live in a crazy day and age where people that are the elites. Hold on, quick. Are you okay? Okay. So, the old uh, as we live in a day and age where our social elites could say so many things that are counterfactual that when you actually look at the data of academic work, it actually shows it's actually the opposite of what our news, what our celebrities talk about. Okay. So with these things, I want to also make a caution as I go over this. Um, I will be discussing things of Catholicism. I do not believe Catholicism is biblical. I think their way of salvation is not. But I also think what I'm trying to do with this study, and also as well, is to say that to the degree that when they go more biblical and draw out its implication, though they did not live this um, consistently, I also think, just to show the example of how actually the Old Testament actually make an impact. I also want to mention this when I say about the Old Testament. I want to focus more on the Old Testament. Uh, and the scripture making impact because when I say this I'm not saying that professing Christians throughout history was always right there's people that profess to be Christians that throughout history have always done the wrong thing and also even done things contrary to even everything that I've said and a good example of that those that profess to be Christian is even also as well we talk about the, about Catholicism okay because I also think when we talk about this if you guys are in your mind thinking about wait you're saying that this is uh, these they're talking about this and how did they have the Spanish Inquisition how did they have counter-reformation thing and I would actually say this is where you see the battle within the church the Catholic Church where they decide to follow unbiblical and I would even argue a pagan direction of how to go about judicial process of finding someone as guilty and punishing them rather than being consistent with what the Bible teaches, okay? So there are a lot of exceptions um, with that where people have violated that, okay? Um, so this is not what I'm saying. I want to focus on objectively saying that whenever we look at the Old Testament, the implication shapes the way we go about punishing somebody or saying someone is guilty of something has implication that frames our way, our, our legal tradition today, that when someone, you want to say someone did something wrong, you need a number one, a trial. You need a number two, assume innocent before proving guilty. And number three, that one of the things you go about process is trial by witnesses, okay? Trial by witnesses, okay? We take these so much for granted. We see TV shows for it. But where do all these ideas come from in the beginning, okay? Um, so let's look at point number one. I want to show... Um, point number one is the Old Testament influence on need for trials. Okay, and by the way, with each of these three points, I also want to look at how this, the way I structure it is to say that a um, there's other methods besides the one that we take it for granted for today. Okay, and then uh, also as well, so each one of these three points will have further subpoints of each, right? Where we'll talk about other methods. Uh, number one, and, or subpoint number one, and subpoint number two is also talk about the Old Testament teachings, and also point number three, the history. Okay, so I might reverse the order with two and three from time to time, where sometimes I talk about, hey, this is the history of what they pull the passage before we look at a passage. Okay, so these are really roughly the three points I'm looking at tonight. Is when we look at all these things, three, these three points, the, these further subpoints is like, for instance, when we look at trials, I want to talk about, wait, um. Did people always punish people always by trial? Or are there other methods, right? Then we look at like other methods, Old Testament teaching, and also the history of actual people that have thought about legal theory and legal method and how they even draw the Old Testament into this, okay? So the need for trials, okay? It's almost we take it for granted today that if someone broke the law when they have punishment, uh, we take it for granted that there must be a trial. But that's not always the case. In fact, if you look at throughout history, when there are tyrants, even in this world today, do tyrants necessarily always have trials? Were there throughout history where people that was a ruler says, hey, if you've done something wrong, I will punish you right then and there? Um, yes, okay? So there is that aspect. But we see that actually this is actually an important thing because we don't want it where someone just has all the power. He could punish without establishing truth establishing whether or not you've actually violated that. So we see there's an importance of this, okay? So here I want to quote here um, 
again, uh, it's unfortunate I don't have the outline, so I'll have to send this out, okay? This is actually from a, a, a legal journal called The Jurors, okay? In edition 63, issue 63, which is actually published in 2003, um, there's a, a, a legal f uh, professor that's with the history of law named Kenneth uh, Pennington, okay? Um, on page 114 of this issue, this is what he mentioned about how it was never, we, we take it for granted that there always be trials, but that was not always the history of that. And he's talking specifically, his area of expertise is actually in the medieval ages. He mentioned this um, on page 114 of, of his of his journal article. Again, this is peer review academic journal article that, that that's not Christian, okay? So the jurors. This is what he says, uh, mentioning here. Uh, in the middle of the 13th century, 13th century, by the way, is medieval ages, okay? One of the most distinguished jurists of the age, Henriquez of Sergusio, okay? Summed up juristic thought when he declared that notorious crime, especially those committed against the church. Now remember, this is a time of Catholic Church, where Catholic Church is the most important venerated institution, okay? Needed no, it goes on and says, needed no formal judicial examination. You know what basically he's saying? He's saying that one of the leading thinkers in the medieval ages about law of trial and courts thinks that when you make a crime against the church, you broke church law, Catholic church law specifically, he thinks because it's such a grave sin, you don't need to have a trial for someone to be punished. Now, question, would you, would we, most of us agree that this is a good thing? No. And this is a leading person that's thinking about court and trials. Back then, think it was not. By the way, I think you could see this tendency that this, just before you think, okay, this is back then, the medieval ages, they're so bad, this is why I'm not a Catholic, blah, 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 and yes, this is bad. But think about it even today. Do not today people sometimes, whatever people think is a great, um, I think in every culture, Every culture has a blasphemy law. You know how sometimes people say, oh, we're not religious? Every culture has laws that we think is so bad, they should be punished by death if you break that. And it goes against the order, um, whatever it is you hold to, whether uh, of God or whatever else, what we call blasphemy law. I think it's always the truth in our day and age. And sometimes when we think of these laws that we think is so heinous that must be punished, don't, don't people often say we don't need to go by legal process? Think, for example, okay, um, I'll give an example of even uh, those that we sometimes would people would say is more conservative, although I don't think it's consistent with conservative value, where we think of like a terrorist. When once, once we use the label of terrorist, do we not often right away say, hey, we're not going to give them the full constitutional process, even if they happen in U.S. ground, even at times when we, they would even be an American citizen. Now, I'm not saying this, uh, ragging on this. You guys know I'm conservative. Um, you guys know that I do love this country, but I also think that could be something that could be very dangerous, okay? Now, before you think I'm just ragging on the right, here's one that's relevant for today. What happens when someone gets labeled an insurrectionist? We suddenly think, oh, no due process, right? We could keep them, you know, you hashtag anything January 6th, and you think you could keep them under uh, arrest, uh, you know, under, under prison with no due process, with no jail, with all these things. And it's okay as long as possible because it's threatening the the idol of even the form of government also as well. Now again, let me say this. I do believe that people could commit heinous crimes and heinous sin. But I do believe it's very important to have trials. So I bring this up as to say is this. Before we point to the Catholic Church and say, hey, they were wrong to say there's no need for due process, no need for trial back then. And guess what? They are wrong. But looking in the mirror today, I do think we have the importance of a need for courts. Okay, there is an importance of a need for trials. Okay, and I'm bringing this example to say, uh, I do think there needs to be a process. Now, let me clarify too, just before we move on. I know there's some guys that are in the military. I do believe military law is very different than civil law. So for some of those terrorist things, in example, if they're in the Middle East and stuff like that, or, or a certain place, I do believe the law of warfare applies very differently um, than with, with other things. But it has to go through legal process, and military process also involves trials also as well, okay? Must involve trials also as well. So, but at the same time, when I'm saying this, I still reject a neocon position of law, where it's this amoeba is there, you're trying military, but it's not military, but it's not civil, and it's it's just this weird quasi thing. So I think I'm a consistent conservative. I'm not a neoconservative. I actually don't think neocon is actually 
conservative. But that's another sermon another time. I just want to clarify this because it's recorded on sermon audio and everything else just before people think I'm like a crazy war hawk um, that thinks of unjust principle, okay? So going back on with this, we think of this, but nevertheless, something changed in the 13th century, okay? You know the, what's fascinating uh, as we, we look at these topics, right? Um, about the importance of trial. Something happened. Um, like it's taken almost for granted because we, we, because medieval ages during that time, and even when the, if you remember your history, the Roman Empire actually had a lot of law. They need that for the order of things. And I think by God's common grace, sometimes God allows that there would be trials, right? You think of even the benefit of Jesus, right? The, there was a trial, but nevertheless, it was wrong. It was not done fully, rightfully, right? And even Paul benefited if you read the book of Acts. And you might, some if you read some of the books on history, some of the people would say things like, no, it's actually old to Roman culture and Greco-Roman culture. And in some sense, that's true. But I don't think it's right to say, hey, there's no Christian influence just because there's some Roman, Greco-Roman influence on our, our aspect of law. That influence of that inf uh, of our law from the past is what is often called, just for you guys to know, for, um, I'm not getting into all poli-sci, which is my major before, right? Um, it was what we often call common law. But if you study common law professors, they often would say Christianity make an impact too because... While they had the Greco-Roman law, the need for trials, Greco-Roman, uh, when the Roman Empire fell, there was actually the Germanic tribes, the Huns, took over, and they did not go by Roman laws at all. It was crazy, where it's like, hey, I don't like you, you're wrong, boom, off with your heads, okay, where it gets crazy. So by the time medieval age, they're trying to say, okay, our times are over, We're there's more Christian influence, how do we live in society in light of this? So the height of this, this is why we're looking at the medieval ages, to, to say it's only Greco-Roman law, but then say, how did it go back to that process was actually through the process of the Old Testament, okay? So um, let me read this again. The same professor um, in the same journal, in the Juris Peer Review Journal, says this, Before the mid middle of the 13th century, jurists accept the right of the prince or the judge to ignore the rules of judicial process. Because they consider legal procedure to be part of civil law, that is positive law, and does completely under the judge's or uh, uh, princes or the judge's authority. I'm not going to go into all this into the details, but basically they thought these laws came from these princes, so therefore they could ignore them, right? But then what happened is interesting. There was this legal uh, 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 professor, I can't pronounce his name, I'm going to call him P. But the way you spell his name is P as in Papa, A as in Alpha, U as in Uniform, C as in Alpha, a is in Papa, A is in Alpha, L is in Lima, E is in Echo, A is in Alpha. I'm going to repeat this name again. P-A-U-P, no, correction, ah, let me respell it. Okay. P-A-U-C-A-P-A-L-E-A. -A -A. This particular lawyer um, introduced, and I'm quoting here, continues, a different story and different paradigm. The inexhaustible uh, logic of their argument resulted in the inevitable conclusion that if the order, oh man, there's so many Latin, basically the order of due process can be found in the Old Testament. And if God has respect of the rights of defendants, then um, the rule of procedure must transcend positive law. Remember, positive law, what it means in law, means actually laws that came about from the rulers themselves. Where Remember earlier, they were just thinking it's okay to pass it because they made it up and they could just pass it whenever they want. But he's now saying it's natural law. That is, it's built in by God in the order of creation. Okay? Um, the implication of P's new paradigm evolved slowly in the jurisprudence of the 13th century. The Bible is, after all, the cornerstone of our human understanding of divine law. And from Gratian, Gratian basically is a, um, his mentor, um, the guy that was writing about how do we build law now that we're, we're passing this time of dramatic tribes, we're, we're now want to do things that is just, etc. Okay, goes on the jurist equated divine law and natural law. Okay, um, so consequently, under the influence of P, between 1250 and 1300s, the jurist began to argue that the judicial process and the norms of procedure um, were not derived from civil law but from natural law or the law of the nation. The us getunium, that's Latin word for the law of the nations. And implied with that is law from God, okay? So let me explain this. What they saw, what this man actually says why we need to have trials instead of just saying, okay, I'm a, I'm a, a king. I could punish anyone I want. I could, a police officer could do whatever I want in punishment. What he said was, you know where did he turn to? He turned to the Old Testament. Anywhere specifically in the Old Testament was actually with Genesis 3, 
Okay? If you remember Genesis 3, um, Genesis 3 was the result of the sin. Now, why I think is it fascinating to bring this up is this. I can't think of any worse sin that has worse consequences for all of history than the very first sin of Adam and Eve. And nevertheless, when that happened, did God right away punish Adam and Eve? Or did God actually talk to them? Had the person that's guilty be face with one another and bring about questions to them, Adam and Eve, and also uh, Satan. And also having their words with one another there, right? With the accusation that they're there, right? So this is fascinating because when you think about how, like I said earlier, um, you could always tell what someone's theology is. When sometimes people say, oh, I don't have a theology of government. By always saying, hey, what is the one thing they think is so bad that you could think you could punish them without trials? For the for the leftist status, they think it's what? The, do, the, the formal process of making sure that Joe Biden is president, right? It's such a blasphemy and all. They'll call it, for instance, the Capitol sacred. I do not call the Capitol sacred. I love the U.S. I'm willing at one point to die for the U.S., but I would never call that sacred as if somehow that is what? That is something of, of God. Now, it is sacred in the sense that everything is sacred, that all we do for God, but it does not elevate itself as sacredness that is above other areas of other spheres of life. Okay? I believe everything is sacred, but it's not sacred in the sense of something that intensely beyond that, just because it's with the state. Okay? So, we see here, when we look at Genesis 3, I love how, if you guys could turn there real quick, you know, God asks questions. And when there's an accusation, um, notice also, for instance, as well, right, um, in Genesis 3, when God asked the questions, right, first he asked, uh, called to the man, man right, uh, where he says, where are you? And then notice what does Adam does? He blame shifts what? Right? Eve, okay? And then did he just say, okay, Eve, you're guilty, boom, that's it. No, he then goes and say, Eve. What, what happened, right? So these questions, and by the way, is God all-knowing? The answer is yes, God's all-knowing. Nevertheless, still God went through that process. And what ended up happening, it's unfortunate that the writing of this individual does not exist because it's in Latin, okay? It does not exist in English because it's still in Latin. Um, that's why in the past, why you wonder why all those lawyers in the past, even in American lawyers in the time before the Puritans and also the time of the uh, American founding fathers and the revolutionaries, why the Red Latin was because the source came from that, from that, okay? So they would, uh, that's exactly the reason they said that. If God is able to do this, even though he's all-knowing, how much more are we, whose smaller uh, beings, whose created being, not have the importance of trials, okay? Not have the importance of trials, so that was from the text, okay, from the scripture. Um, let me just talk a little bit about, in light of this, this is the history, okay? Now I'm going to quote someone else instead of another guy named Pangdon. This is going to be from someone named Andres Winworth, okay? Andres Winworth. Winworth is spelled W-I-N-R-O-T-H. W as in whiskey, I as in India, N as in November, R as in Romeo, O as in Oscar, T as in tango, H as in hotel, Okay. This person published this journal. By the way, this is a new. Uh, this is something new. So I'm not using out of date things. Don't think I'm quoting things from the 60s and 70s just because or 50s and 40s scholarship. Okay, um, this individual um, uh, wrote a journal article, peer-reviewed journal article called the Oxford Journal of Law and Religion. The Oxford Journal of Law and Relig uh, Religion. Okay, this is from 2003. Okay, this is from 2000. Okay, on page 114. This is he's explaining here the process of what or he or she, I don't know what Andres is, um, explaining there of that individual named the the he individual that I can't pronounce, Pacupilia, whatever that is, okay, uh, who was a mentor of this guy named um, Gratian, okay. And I'm just going to quote here real quick one of Gratian's earliest known successor, a professor of Bologna, uh, Bologna, Spain, okay, um, who may have been called. P, I can't pronounce it, okay, may have studied with Gratian, took the second step towards universal right in commenting on Gratian's book. By the way, what they would like to do back then, this is my own word now, people like to, books were scarce. People would often remember and summarize things called sentences. They'll have books on other books. They don't have the whole book because it's expensive, but they'll have key words and quotes um, here. And sometimes they'll have commentaries of that purpose uh, of that, just so that people would be able to understand and also as well as way of sometimes you might not be able to have the whole book, but you could have sentences, uh, looking at the sentences, explaining that with a commentary, okay? 
let's go back on. He pointed out there was due process, or he called it procedure of pleading, already in the Garden of Eden. When Adam ate the fruit, forbidden fruit, and God prosecuted him, Adam was allowed to defend himself. He did so by blaming Eve, and by extension God, since he pointed out it was God who gave Eve to him. The procedure of, of pleading, what in Latin is called placentia forma, seemed to have been founded initially in paradise when the first man, questioned by the Lord about the sin of disobedience, used a counter-accusation and a shift of responsibility for the sin and accusation that the guilty was placed on his wife, saying, The woman whom you gave, gave to me, and I ate. Pusentia, uh, no, uh, possibly, I can't pronounce his name. P, point out, a point was that since God allowed Adam to defend himself and even to counter-plea, God believed in due process. Human courts must thus also observe due process, which is part of unchanging uh, natural law. And it's true. You can't just say, looking at Adam and Eve with the fall, that God did this, and you say, oh, that's only Old Testament Israel. Because Israel did not exist at this moment. This was actually the first man and woman when the world order was still perfect. And nevertheless, you see a process of, of due process, okay? Of due process here. Um, so it's interesting to see its contribution. And by the way, later on, of course, the Old Testament would have many other examples. And even in the New Testament, the idea that using court is very important. Okay. Now, of course, when we get to the New Testament, even in 1 Corinthians, it also is important to say you don't use court for everything. If you can resolve problem before there's court, praise God and, and do that. And among believers, you should not be suing one another um, for the deflaming, uh, defamation of Christ's honor and stuff like that. But nevertheless, the institution of trial is there. Okay. So just because there's trial does not mean it's always just, right? Because there's also puppet trials, true or not. So the modes of how you go about, the order of how you go about prosecuting and doing your trials is also important. So if point number one, I showed you the Old Testament influence on a need for trials and how historically that developed in the 1200 periods. By the way, the reason why the 1200 periods happened was also because it was, to fill in a bit of background, the popes was grabbing a lot of power. They were doing things, and there were some bishops that said, maybe this is not right, that the Pope could have all this power. And what happened in the 1200s was, this is how this council call, um, happened about, where all these legal guys were having, were saying, wait, could we just have all these things just because the church says so? And they eventually says no. And actually, it's around the 1200 period that they finally said, you know what, um, the priests can, I don't believe in, biblical, in Catholic priests, but I'm just saying the process, they start saying, they say, wait, there must be a separation of church and also those that are judges also as well, okay? Um, I don't think they were consistent, but I think they had enough idea of looking at the Old Testament and New Testament to say there needs to be a separation of spheres. And if you guys are interested in that, I welcome you guys to look at the previous teaching last year on separation of powers, why that's biblically driven in light of a biblical view of human nature and also Old Testament examples, okay? So let's go to point number two. I don't want to just say there's trials, but we assume a lot of things of trials going a certain way, Okay. By the way, are there fake show trials throughout history? There is, right? And by the way, just to make this impact, I also want to make this point just for us. Some of us I know are not necessarily in the West. After all, some of us are in the East right now, literally, while we're doing this WebEx meeting. And some of us might be like, hey, you know what? I am a man or woman that's more of the Eastern way of thinking, Asian way of thinking. By the way, this impact on the West has an impact on also other areas and other countries, even in Asia with law. One of the things that I always thought is always so fascinating of the Western impact of law and also by that also even a Christian impact on common law which impact then Western tradition of the importance of courts and how to do court is, I don't know, you guys could Google, I always thought because you're so funny, I was just showing my daughters the other day how Hong Kong, there's now a battle of foundations of law. I don't want to get too political, but one country, now. Uh, the country that now it's officially a part of have a very different idea of law that's actually much more Marxist driven Marxist impact of that but I look at Hong Kong because Hong Kong is an impact as an English colony until 1997 was impacted a lot by English law and if you guys all know law when I say common law what I mean by that is a foundation from the west of medieval ages and the impact of Greco-Roman culture and also biblical Christianity impact upon that Right? And of course, it's mediated and all that, okay? And it's not the only thing is Christianity. But nevertheless, I look at those pictures. If you Google it, uh, Google Hong Kong judges, I like how it shows. If you ever look at the Hong Kong judges wear those English wigs. You guys ever see those English wigs? And here's these guys that are fully Cantonese, 
like Chinese ethnically wearing these English um, wigs and they're doing it with and wearing the English costume of what it is that you would expect in England today. And I bring that up as to say this do is drawing due heritage also as well back impact um, with that. It does matter, okay? It does matter. And I think it's powerful to show the Christian and the biblical Old Testament um, impact upon it. Let's go to point number two. I don't want to just say trials because there's show trials. And there's actually ways of trials that we would say is legitimate. Um, and part of the big influence of that is point number two. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, but point because I want to go to point number three um, for the time. I don't have enough longer than point two. Is point number two we're at is the Old Testament influence on innocent until proven guilty. The Old Testament influence on innocent until proven guilty. It's interesting, the word innocent until proven guilty is something that we assume so take it for granted. But where did that come from? Where did that phrase ever come from? Um, it's fascinating because when we look at the um, genealogy of legal history, this word is not found in our Constitution. This word is not even found in our Declaration of Independence. This word is not even found in Magna Carta, which is the English Constitution, which a few years ago in the Ronald Reagan Library, um, they took it, uh, came to America, and I was looking at this, and I was just so excited. I was trying to tell these seminary students just the power of all that, right? Nevertheless, uh, Bo made a good point. It comes from the amendment, and it's interesting, too. Like, when you look at the courts, and this is where, for me where I do think sometimes we have to be very careful to justify, I think all our rights only come from court decision. Because the court decision, the earliest time, the first time you ever see innocent until proven guilty was actually in the late 1800s where it was far removed from even the, um, the Puritan impact of natural law and even also the revolutionary founders. By that point, it's what is called legal positivism, which is where we're heading towards the tra uh, actually our tra uh, trajectory is that and also something called progressivism. But I bring that up as to say is this. We take it so much for granted, okay? We take it so much for granted. Where did it came from, this idea of, of all of that, okay? Um, the root of this, I, I think, um, by the way, today's world, not everywhere around the world, that is assumed and throughout history that someone is innocent until proven guilty. Okay, there are certain parts of the world you seem deemed guilty until you're proven innocent. Okay, um, deemed guilty until you're proven innocent. Where did that idea came from historically? Um, like I said earlier, the Roman culture had an elaborate system that you must be you are innocent until proven guilty. And here I'm going to be quoting um, from. Uh, a, a document or a book. Um, sorry. Uh, this is where now I'm quoting from a book called. Okay, it's uh, the it's called the Handy History Answer Book. Okay, and on page one, uh, two fifty eight, uh, it talks about how there was some. Oh, actually. So I actually sorry, uh, let me back up a bit. Um, sorry, that was point three. Um, so here, uh, with with, uh, with the importance of, of this, remember going back on to the twelfth century. This is where a lot of these things started developing. This idea of spelling out uh, with these things. Okay, um, so uh, going back on uh, with. Point, sorry, I don't know why the document keeps going. So going uh, with, uh, with this is there's a person in the 1300s, okay, um, named Johannes Monicus, okay, and he was talking about building upon earlier for the uh, earlier individual that I mentioned, Gratian and the guy with the name P that I can't pronounce really well, okay. Um, he started actually taking the Bible and the Old Testament even more to say, okay, if this is true, we need a trial. Um, we need to also as well. Need a, how do we? What are our legal presupposition with someone that is guilty? And here I'm going to be quoting footnote six uh, again. Uh, this is now um, Kenneth Pagenkin, which I mentioned earlier. But now this is um, uh, from the Juris Volume Ten, okay, uh, issue one. Um, so, uh, this is from February of 2021. February of 2021. So I'm not quoting old sources. This is something. You know, just last year, okay? And this is him describing just where do we get this idea from? He mentioned this. Um, addressing the question, and again, this is talking about this Johann um, Monicus guy in the 1300s. 
100. He's addressing the question whether the Pope may judge a notorious criminal without calling him to court. Because Pope Boniface VIII had claimed such a right. And Johann Monikus, dated 1313, pointed to the biblical stories about Sodom and Cain. God wanted to prove and see before he judged. Although their crimes were obvious, even to observers who were not omniscient, and this is here he's quoting, the voices of your brother Abel's of blood is crying out from the ground. Some in the court clearly be, uh, belongs to natural law, Johann said. In continuing his discussion of due process at length and great complexities, Johann even determined that everyone is presumed innocent unless they are proven culpable, thus laying down one of the most basic rules of modern criminal law. His his comment mattered, for they become included in the standard commentary on the corpus of canon law, which widely was circulated widely by manuscripts and print. So what we see here is here's the first time that phrase ever came about, innocent until proven guilty, was a result of looking at the Old Testament of like with very with all these sin, right? You think of Cain and Abel, you know, um, Cain killed Abel, right? And still. God, even though the voice cried out as a witness, right, the blood cried out, still God confronted Cain and talked about before he pronounced judgment. So here again, we see explicitly how those in the Old Testament, uh, or correction, those in the past brought out and framed these ideas of the need for um, a trial of innocent um, until proven guilty. Now, you might disagree at this point and say they're drawing all these applications wrong, but nevertheless, I want to make the point of point one and two that's very, nevertheless, people were explicitly going to the Old Testament to shape human civil law. And that's something we'd be grateful for. The one area that I think is much more stronger exegetically is actually, to me, point number three, um, the Old Testament influence on trial by witnesses, Okay. The Old Testament influences on trial by witnesses. I think this is actually much more stronger ground than anything. So, you know, we laid down the foundation. There needs to be trial. You can't just say someone, you know, let's just say I'm a police officer. Hey, you're guilty. Let me just punish you right then and there, right? Uh, no, I have to arrest. And there's a due process of trial, establishing the facts, that kind of thing, okay? And then point number two, we saw that what's important is also the assumption of innocent until proven guilty, okay? Innocent until proven guilty, then we need, you know, um, and by the way, like I said earlier, this is not, we could think these are old process people today don't, cannot think of it, right? I, I'm so amazed that in a day and age where they've done studies where more people are open to Marxism than ever before, we have more empirical data that Marxism is a horrible form of government. A few years ago, I went with our brother Eric to a country that was Marxist run, where people, the way, when they arrested you, you were assumed guilty. And the question is not, are you guilty? The question is, who did you also work with with a capitalist spy? And that resulted in such a horrific murder. A third of the country, 33%, was wiped out. And as Brother Eric and I went over there, we went to, they converted a high school in their capital, Phnom Penh, and they converted it into something called S21, which is where the interrogation happened and the trial and everything else. And we went, this is the sick human nature of people that are sick. When people are evil in the government level, they love to document their crimes. You could look at the archives of Hitler, right? That's how we know the Holocaust happened. You could look even the Soviet archives. Um, you know, we had a window of opportunity from the early mid two thousands to two thousand eighteen ish, where even Western historians could go archive. They documented so well, and the the same thing in this country, the Khmer Rouge, right? What we often call the Khmer Rouge, they documented took so many pictures as we went over there and the skulls with the bullet hole it was just so horrific when I look it's like this is a system that assumes guilty before proven innocent the question is not whether you did the crime the question is you did the crime but who else did you do this with right and this is such a horrific thing right such a horrific thing this is what and I think how they got there is this if you don't have God as your God then if above all is just sky and there's no God the next thing you feel for God is the most powerfulest thing, and that's the state. And if you believe the state must be protected at all costs, that means you, you would say, I'm going to protect it, even if it means a whole bunch of innocent people get killed. At least the government is safe. What a horrible thing. What a beautiful thing when we have God as God, as our absolute and our so sovereign, where you know that God is sovereign 
you know, if you believe that God is sovereign, then you know that no man's thing would ever thwart him. So you would go by a different principle, what is called the Blackstone principle, right? That it's better to let someone innocent be what? Um, uh, let someone be guilty, be let go, that the trial did not found him guilty by reasonable doubt, but God will deal with him versus punishing someone through the system itself and an innocent person unjustly be killed. You see, there's a very different thing depending on who is your God and who's your functional God when it comes to government, okay? Let's go to point number three, the influence, Old Testament influence of trial by witnesses, okay? Um, trial by witnesses. It's not given that the establish, after we say innocent until proven guilty, we need to establish someone's guilt. But how? What would bring about um, proof? And here I think the Old Testament is so, 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 so important, okay? The Old Testament is so very important, um, because before, it's not about history. People would say it's trial by witnesses. There's something called trial by ordeals. Anyone ever heard of that? Um, legal method is trial by ordeal. Is instead of, instead of going asking there's witnesses establishing fact, what you do is you bring about all sorts of things to test them that are superstitious, right? Um, I'll give you an example just so that you don't think I'm just biased, okay? I love the Puritans. But the Puritans is famous in history for doing something wrong. That was a wrong trial. And it's a trial by ordeal, right? Um, the Salem witch trial is what I'm talking about. Okay, Salem's witch trial. Where instead of basing upon data of witnesses and stuff, you do all these kind of weird things where you say, hey, we'll put you underwater if this happened or that happened, okay? Trial by ordeal, by the way, it's not just only in the West. Superstition. Trial by ordeal is actually built in systemically, structurally, in Hindu caste system of that time. Of all these things, they were saying, okay, um, you know, superstitions and all these things. And sometimes trial by ordeal also involve torturing of an individual. Okay? Torturing of an individual. But what we would say biblically that is wrong. Okay? So I just want to mention that we take it for granted, trial by witnesses. But throughout history, there's even in recent thing, like I even mentioned earlier, right? There's trial by what? Or do you, and I actually think just before you think you're so we're so great, maybe that's all the religious. Marxism is a big trial by ordeal, where they're torturing people to get the answer that they want. Okay. But we also see, I think, a big part of trial ordeal when you torture people is you believe that people could be a witness against uh, yourself with crime. But the Bible establishes something else very differently. If you guys can, turn with me real quick to Exodus 20, verse 16. And when we turn to Exodus 20, verse 16, you will realize this is from the Old Testament. Okay? If you guys could turn with me real quick to Exodus 20, verse 16. Just look at catch my breath. Could I have um, Mandy, would you be my happy, motivated reader to read for me Exodus 20, verse 16? This is from the Ten Commandments. We read this and we take it so much for granted what it's trying to say. But we want to unpack that. Go ahead, Mandy. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, thank you so much. The Hebrew word for false witness is shakar. is actually talking about witnesses in a legal context. Now, there's other verse, uh, Hebrew verbs for lying in general. That's also brought up later on other other parts. For instance, you could look up um, for the word in general. Um, uh, you know, for you shouldn't lie um, in... Uh, Hosea, I mean, I just wrote it down. Hosea four two, okay. But this specific word is actually a legal context, not bearing false witnesses, okay. And by the way, the biblical criteria when you want to say someone is guilty of something in the Old Testament is how many witnesses do you need? Two or three, okay. If you guys can turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter nineteen verse fifteen. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. When we turn over there, Jesus, could you be my happy, motivated reader to read for me Deuteronomy 19, verse 15? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Verse 15? Uh, yes, sir. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Yeah. 
So Deuteronomy 19.15 establishes that what you need a witness, not just a witness, but you need, what, two or three collaborating with that. And let me ask you guys this question. In the witness, when we see this, does that mean that the suspect is a witness against himself? Count as one of the two or three. What do you guys think? No. no, you can't be a witness against yourself. <laughs> yeah. So you see something that's so simple. We could read. We could evangelize using the Ten Commandments. When you look at Deuteronomy uh, 19.15, when you look back again at Exodus 20, verse 16, the Ten Commandments here laid the foundation for the West. Again, legally, and I think this is justified. Right? You other exegetes earlier might say, well, I'm glad they had all that from the principle. But Jimmy, I don't know. But I think this one is actually much more clear. Where we see very clear the word shakar is in a legal testament. And in, in the Old Testament, not only that, the penalty for lying is very great. What happens if someone were to tell a lie legally as a false witness and it turned out they were lying? Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 and 19. Ben Wartz, would you be able to read that for us? Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 and 19. Again, Deuteronomy 19, verse 18 and 19. Okay, Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy 18, verse 19. Deuteronomy 19. 19. Verse 18 and 19. 18 for what? 18 and 19. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. So the the judge must make a thorough investigation. And if the witnesses prove to be liars, giving false testimony against fellow Israelites, then do the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. Yeah, so we see here, right, that the old... Sorry, did someone say something? Okay, so we see the importance of that, right? Like if you were to bear false witness and if you were to be lying, the penalty would be great. That you would take the very punishment. So does God care about witnesses? Yes, God cares a lot about the witnesses. So I think what we see here is the importance of having witnesses, right? To establish that there is uh, that someone has done something uh, wrong with that. And it's not just assume, okay, if that, that is just okay and, and we could just do whatever we want okay so um all of this is to say that this laid the foundation and um there is even not only just so that you don't think it's just all catholic also as well um i think reformed theologians are the ones and reform um influence uh legal scholars are some of the ones that think about the, this implication the most there's a person named johan altisis okay um, he's actually a Calvinist. He was influenced by John Calvin. And he's a Ger German jurist. That is a you know German political philosopher with the area of law. And he actually applies the Ten Commandments and said, the second table has applications for even our legal setting. Okay, Now, I'm not going to go into all of this, but here we show, and I think that tradition is something people recognize um, very easily. That tradition is not begun by a guy named Rushduni, right? But there's all these guys you see, oftentimes reformed guys, when they write the, in the area of that. You see even John Frame, who's not a theonomist, will write things up saying, let's look at the Old Testament and look at these uh, Old Testament laws with the, um, with the Ten Commandments specifically and draw its implication even for the area of civic life. So I think in all of this, we say we could be grateful and thankful that it laid these foundations down. Okay, 